As Andrew mentioned, we're in the core team phase of our church, and the idea is, is during this phase, we're getting our minds and hearts aligned around what God has for us, what his vision is for the church. And so a few weeks back, we started talking about our vision and our mission, and we started with our vision, and and we have prayed into this, and we feel that God is calling us to this uh, vision that's wrapped up in a phrase that goes like this, in Omaha as it is in heaven. Like, we want this church to exist to the end of seeing Omaha and really the rest of the world look more like heaven. And so we want to see people uh, love each other deeply. And we want to see marriages and families and individuals flourish. And we want to see things like poverty and, and homelessness eradicated. That's what it would look like if Omaha looked like heaven. And so if our vision is our destination, our preferred reality to where we're going, uh, we've said we have to have a road to get there. And our road to get there, uh, we're calling our mission. And our mission at our, at our church here at Providence is to make and send disciples. We think if there is any way that we're going to be able to see Omaha look more like heaven, it's to, to raise up disciples, to make disciples, and then to send them out into the streets of our cities and around the world, just like these teams that were up front, to be able to share the love of Jesus and to love people just like Jesus loved them. Now, last week, we jumped into our core values. So, so if our vision is our destination and the mission is the road, we consider our core values the vehicle we're taking to get there. And so we have four core values, and last week, Andrew started with our first core value. It's always mentioned first, um, it's the gospel. And the reason that we always mention that first is because that's where the story all starts, with God coming down to us in Jesus. That's where transformation starts, by God coming in the person of Jesus down to us to seek and save the lost, to save sinners. And so... We have this nice little way of helping us remember our core values by representing each one with an arrow. And so the gospel is represented by a down arrow because Jesus came to us. In the next three weeks, we're going to talk about the rest of the arrows, the out arrow and the in arrow, uh, mission and community. But today we're talking about worship, which is represented by an up arrow. And we say uh, worship is our upward response back to God. He comes down to us in the gospel and our right response upward is Worship. So worship at its core is a response. And we're going to find that in this text that, that our response to the gospel is not just believing. It's not just saying, uh, uh, okay, thanks Jesus for my, for my punch card to heaven. Now I can get in with my ticket to heaven. I'm just going to coast from here on out. No, that, that when you truly believe the gospel and it takes roots in your hearts, you will also act. Paul is going to say, it's going to make us want to do something. Now, as I thought about this, I thought of maybe the closest earthly comparison to this is the idea of marriage. So I'll give you a little background uh, to my story. When I grew up, I was, um, all my years growing up, I always thought I was going to one day grow up and get married. Now, after many failed attempts and awkward blind dates, I finally found a girl uh, who would actually uh, date me, and I happened to fall in love with her. It went pretty well. I was 29 years old. Uh, she happens to be my wife now. Carrie, she's sitting in the back. You can clap for her if you want. Thank you. And so we fell in love. We got engaged, um, and then we started planning 
this wedding. And we, uh, we were planning this grand celebration. It was going to be amazing. We had all the food lined up. We had the decor on point. There were people flying in from states away to come and have this huge celebration with us. And honestly, as I look back on that day five years ago, it was one of my favorite days of my entire life. Such an amazing time, such an amazing celebration. But there is one day in, in, in that, or one time on a wedding day, while you're all in the moment, that you look forward to the future and you talk about what you're going to do in light of this marriage, in light of this wedding, and that's during the wedding vows, right? In light of the fact that you're getting married, you're going to commit to something. You're going to act a certain way. You're going to be self-sacrificial in a certain way. Now, I uh, I actually scoured through my emails uh, and actually found my wedding vows that I wrote the night before at like 12.30 a.m. I put a lot of thought into them, though. Um, And so in the beginning of my vows, I I wrote all these nice, gushy things that Carrie was amazing and beautiful and stunning and blah, blah, blah. You guys don't really care about that part. But... About halfway through, I, I got to the actions that I was going to commit to. Is it okay if I read these for you today? You guys want to hear these? Okay. So here's part of my vows. Why are you laughing? Is that bad? What, what happened? Okay. So I said, Carrie, you are my new family. You are my priority. You are the most important person in the world to me. I promise to love you every day of my life. I promise to honor and respect you when I'm with you and when I'm not with you. I promise to assume the best, even when we have miscommunications or disagreements. I promise to to lead you and take care of you to the best of my ability. No matter what happens, I'm in this to the end. And I have been 100% faithful to every one of those things since that day. I'll tell you what. I'm glad that you realized that, that that was a joke. So these promises, these these vows, they don't keep my my marriage official. They don't keep it legal, right? But they help it to flourish. Like if I ignored some of these vows on some days, my my marriage would still be legally official, but it would take out the the give the life giving, loving, growing, bonding joy that comes with a marriage of how it's supposed to be. And as we look at our short text today, we're going to see Paul lay out this sort of uh, Christian vows for us, how we're supposed to live now. We're going to see that he says, in light of our relationship with Jesus, in light of our union with him, there are certain things that we are supposed to respond. Now, as we read this, they're not, these things are not going to make us a Christian, They're not going to keep us a Christian, but rather they will help our relationship thrive, flourish, grow. And if we worship him in the way that it calls us to worship him here, we will become individuals in a church that brings the most glory to Jesus. And as a church, we want to be worshipers of him. We believe that worshipers are going to make disciples. Worshipers are going to make Omaha look more like heaven. We want to be worshipers. So as we look at this passage specifically, it's divided up verse 1 and verse 2. And the first verse is going to talk about just very simply what we do. Now that we're Christians, what do we do? What are we supposed to live like? And then the second verse is going to tell us how we're going to do that or how we're going to accomplish that. So, and I think... As we get into this today, I think the tension for us is going to come not in necessarily uh, knowing what to do. I think a lot of us know the what part. But I think the tension is going to come when when the rubber meets the road and we actually say, are we actually going to do this? Are we actually going to live like this? Are we actually going to be lifestyle worshipers? So I want to encourage you uh, to let yourself be 
be challenged in humility with, with what these verses have to say. And so we're going to start in verse 1. This is the what to do part. You ready? So Romans 12, 1, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, <clears throat> holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So what are we supposed to do? Romans 12, 1 answers that question, and it says, we are supposed to worship. Or we are supposed to be living sacrifices who worship. Now, that's a pretty big deal. So before we just jump right into that, Paul gives us a why. He tells us a why to the what. He goes back and says, hey, if, if you're going to live for Jesus or re- worship Jesus, there's actually a good reason. And Andrew referenced this in Romans 11 when he read at the beginning. But the first 11 chapters of Romans, before we get to this point, are this extensive, amazing, uh, unbelievably uh, grand explanation of the gospel. You have 11 chapters of how amazing Jesus is, what he's done for us, what he's saved us to. And, and because of that good news, Paul says, because of that, because of those mercies, now I want you to worship. There's a reason for that. Now, have you guys ever had like a, a coach or a, a boss that you just didn't respect? Like you just didn't really uh, connect with them? And when, they, when that coach or that boss comes up to you and they say, hey, I want you to go all in today. I want you to, to, to do this. I want you to give it all today. You're kind of like, eh, why would I do that for you, right? You're a jerk to me. You, you give me no reason to do that. I don't even respect you. I'm not going to follow you. What, what Paul is doing here is he's making a case for the exact opposite. He's saying if there's anyone you should ever follow, is there's, if there's anyone you should ever give your life to, if there's anyone who has ever won your respect, won your trust, that person is Jesus. And he shows that to us in the mercies of God that it mentions in verse 1. Now, when we think of the word mercy, a lot of times we think of uh, when we deserve something bad and maybe we get something good. And this idea of mercies is actually a little bigger than that. When you uh, study the direct translation, I like how Pastor David Helm, he's a Chicago pastor, he defines it like this. Mercies are the tender care given when life's course was harsh. Tender care given when life's course was harsh. And what Paul is desperately trying to communicate to these Romans, and he's trying to desperately communicate this to us here this morning is this. Do you realize how much Jesus has done for you? Do you realize the tender care that has been given to you through Jesus? Like, do you understand that when when you ran away, he chased after you? Do you understand that, that when you were unfaithful time and time and time again, he took you back? Do you understand that, that every time we sin, we have sinned against him and we're deserving of death? But instead of that, instead of us dying, he came down to earth and he died in our place. Do you understand that, that we've sinned and, and we feel this sense of shame and guilt for this, but he's offered us forgiveness and he says, come back with open arms. That, that when you were an orphan and when you felt all alone, he adopted you into his family. He gave you a new father and a new spiritual family. When you were lost, he found you. When you were hopeless, he made you hopeful. When you were directionless, he gave you 
a purpose. All of these things are the mercies of God, and because of that, then we worship. Now, the interesting thing about this is Paul spells this out in this verse, but it gets a little bit lost in translation. He, he says, now, so let me give you a disclaimer here. I'm no Greek scholar, by the way, but I'm really good at reading English books read by, or written by Greek scholars, written in a simple way called commentaries that I can read and understand what they mean. And so when I read through this, I realized that it talks about spiritual worship. And when I first read this, I'm like, spiritual worship? What's spiritual worship? Or better yet, what's unspiritual worship? That doesn't make any sense. But when I looked at the definition of spiritual, it's where we get uh, our word logical. It means rational. And so in other words, it says, by the mercies of God, it's only rational or logical that we worship him. Let me explain it like this. So, so if you are a bird, you spend your life logically flying. If you're a fish, you spend your life logically swimming. And if you're a human who has experienced the mercies of God, you spend your life logically worshiping. It just makes sense. Now, Providence, I want to ask us, what would it look like for us to be a church of worshipers? How would our community look different? How would our days look different? Now, Paul is going to explain what a worshiper is by saying that it's us being a living sacrifice. Now, when the original readers would have read this, this language, living sacrifice, they probably would have thought two things. At first, they would have thought, wait a minute, living sacrifice? Usually, animals get put up on an altar and they're killed. Animals, or sacrifices are dead. What's a living sacrifice? And then their mind probably would have gone back to the first 11 chapters of Romans where they realized, oh, wait. The sacrifice language is, is rooted in Jesus. The, those old dead animal sacrifices are done away with, and now there has been one sacrifice that has come, the lamb that was slain, the perfect lamb, and now it is atoned for our sins. And, and because of that sacrifice, we have gotten new life. We have gone t- from dead to alive, and now we are living. And Paul is saying, because he died for us, we live to him. That's a living sacrifice. We live in every way to him. I like how theologian John Stott put it. He says, to be a living sacrifice, we need to climb up onto the altar ourselves and give ourselves to him. We need to climb up onto the altar ourselves. Can you imagine that? Climbing up onto the altar and saying, okay, Jesus, with the rest of my life, with, with every day, with every hour, with every minute, you have every single part of me. That's a living sacrifice. That's worship. And it's interesting that that Paul references our bodies. He says our bodies need to be a living sacrifice because just chapters earlier in Romans 3, Paul highlights the evil that our bodies actually do. He's kind of speaking in a metaphorical sense, and he says, because of sin, our tongues deceive, our lips are venomous. Our mouth is full of bitterness. Our feet carry us to share blood. In other words, when we're not worshiping God with every single, single part of our body, our bodies sin. The different parts of our body sin. And I think this was the most convicting part of this passage to me as I studied. I had to ask myself, is there a part of my body, metaphorically, that I haven't given to Jesus? And I'll ask you the same thing this morning as you ponder this. Is there a part of you that you have not given 
to Jesus? Are you using your mouth to spread gossip, to spread hate, to spread, spread judgment? Or are you using your mouth to speak the loving words of the gospel, to encourage people? Do you use your, your eyes to lust, or do you, your, do you use your eyes to keep them fixed on Jesus? Your feet carry you to places you shouldn't be going, or do your feet carry you in a direction toward other people who are in need? Do you use your ears to listen to the culture and to the world, or do you use your ears to listen to the Spirit? This is a little bit forward, but, but do you use your body for sexual immorality, or do you use it in a way that promotes purity? Do you use it to love your spouse? And using your body to worship God does not have to be anything heroic. You can use your hands to clean the house and wash the dishes, right? You can use your feet to play soccer with your kids. You can use your mouth to say a simple and kind thank you every once in a while. Now, as I've contemplated this, uh, I've thought of all sorts of examples uh, of not giving my whole self to Jesus and how I've been uh, really not carried this out. But there's one specific thing that, that came to mind, and if you're a former college student of mine, you've heard me say this, but, but um, so about six years ago, I, I moved to Texas when I went to pursue my wife, and when I was there, I was basically unemployed, uh, and I needed some money, but I really wanted a job in ministry. Now, there's one thing you have to know about me, is I kind of have a fear of public speaking. Weird, right? So my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, Carrie, kept saying, hey, Jared, if you really want to be in ministry, you need to talk to the pastor and you need to let him, pre- let, him let you preach. Like, just, just, just tell him that you want to get up there. You got to learn. It'll be good for you. It'll be good development for you. And, and after she bothered me for a long time with this, with this pushing me once again, I said, okay, Carrie, hold on. You've got to stop. Here, here's the deal. I've been praying, I told her this, and this is absolutely true, I said, I've been praying to God that he would give me a job in full-time ministry, but I've been praying that when he gives me a job in ministry that I just wouldn't have to preach when I do it, okay? (laughs) Thanks a lot, Jesus, for coming through on that one. So what I had to decide when God started calling us back to Omaha to, to lead a college ministry, what I had to decide is, was I going to use my mouth? Uh, was I going to use my tongue to be able to, to, to preach the word, to spread the gospel? Was I going to use my anxious mind? Was I going to take those things and lay them on the altar and say, okay, Jesus, this is yours. You can do with it what you want. And I wrestled and wrestled and very reluctantly said, Yes, but only after Carrie kept bothering me time and time again. Now, as we contemplate our bodies as living sacrifices this morning, I just want to ask you again, what, part of your, what parts of your body do you keep off the altar? To be a, worship, to be a, a worshiper, God wants you 24-7. He wants you 365, every part of your body, all the time to be worshiping him. He wants you to crawl up onto that altar. Now, here's the good news for us. As we hear this, it feels maybe a little bit overwhelming, but Paul in the second verse unpacks how we can actually accomplish this. He doesn't abandon us and say, okay, just go figure this out, white knuckle it until you become a great worshiper, but he actually empowers us to do this. And so I want to read the second verse that provides the how. How are we going to accomplish this? So verse two says, 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now this verse answers the how. After we realize, oh, God actually wants every part of us, Paul says, but God doesn't leave you hanging to do it on your own, but he gives you a solution. He says, if you want to be a living sacrifice, your mind has to be renewed. You have to be transformed on the inside so your outsides change, so your body changes. There's a a theologian named Douglas Moo that, that defines renewing the mind this way. He says, renewing the mind is a reprogramming of the mind, a lifelong process in which the mind is taken from the world and made more and more to have in mind the things of God. So if, if we want to have any shot at being living sacrifices, the reality is, is something has to change. I don't know if you feel that inside of you, but, but for me... I, I need some help because I have a tendency to crawl down off that altar and get on my own altar that I want to do whenever I want to, right? When times get tough, it's, it's hard to do this. So this is what Paul goes on to explain. This is what's going on. In verse 2, he sets up a contrast of two opposites. And he says that you are either going to be conformed to this world or you are going to be transformed, by the renewing of your mind. And, and so the idea is, is there are these two forces that are pulling at you. Think of like a, a magnetic pull and the world is over here and it's trying to pull you in and it's trying to push you, mold you and conform you into its shape. And over here, the Holy Spirit living inside of you who has uh, made you new is, is trying to, to transform you further and further into Christ-likeness. <clears throat> and so, I think it's important for us to remember as we go throughout our days that, that, that the world is constantly trying to conform us. In the morning when you get up, when you hit your alarm clock, the world is pulling at you. When you drive to work in the morning, the world is pulling at you. Even when you sit here in the morning and, and, and uh, attempt to, to worship God congregationally, the, the world is pulling at you. It's one of Satan's ploys to try to conform you into his ways wherever you go. And I believe that one of the main ways in America, specifically because we have so much, I think one of the way, main ways that, that the world or, the, or Satan is is through our discontentment. It's through our, our, our desire to always want more, to, to be hungry for more, to desire another life, to desire something else. Let me tell you how this works. I'll give you a couple uh, examples and, and then kind of tease it out a little bit. So, so the first example is this. Uh, imagine you're sitting on your couch and you turn on the TV and HGTV comes on. And you look and you're watching Beachfront Bargain Hunt and you realize, wait, I don't have a house on the beach. And then you're looking, you're like, wait, my kitchen doesn't look like that. You're like, oh, I don't have an open concept house like that. Hey, I kind of want this. And and you start thinking in your mind, if only I had that, then I'd be happy, right? Okay, second example, you're a single person. You happen to be around a lot of dating people and a lot of married people and you see their romantic posts on Facebook and it makes you sick because you're single. And, but, but you're looking at them and you're thinking, man, if I had that, then I would be happy. 
Okay, one more example. This is the last one. So you're scrolling on social media like you usually do, and uh, you're looking, and you have that one friend, that, that friend that always happens to be traveling. They go to Europe, they go to the mountains, they go to the beach. You're like, come on, why can't I have? And you're, you keep scrolling, and he's like, why are they always in, in, in these pictures with all these good-looking people? Like, how is that possible? And they always get invited to these cool events that, that I wish I could go to. They're hanging out at the, at the hippest places in town. And you're like, man, if only I could have that lifestyle, that, then I would be happy. And discontentment pulls you in like a magnetic pole until you start worshiping that very thing that you want your life to look like. You take yourself down off the altar of Jesus as a living sacrifice and you put yourself up on the altar of the image of whatever you're hoping your life to look like. You put yourself on the altar of your dream house or a relationship or or a, a cool, fun, amazing life and it starts taking your money. It starts taking your time. It steals your desires. It steals your joy, that's being conformed. That can happen with all sorts of idols. It can happen with money, with, with success, with power, with leadership positions, with prestigious jobs, with, with sex. It can go on and on. And if you recognize as you're sitting here that that's happening to you right now, the call for us is, is to look at that and, and repent of that. Confess that to Jesus right now and turn the other direction and say, Jesus, I actually trust in you. I don't want that. I want you. You're my treasure. You're my prize. You're the thing that is going to bring to true contentment. And by his grace, he will welcome you back with open arms. So I want to tell you something encouraging in the midst of talking about all this idolatry talk, and that's this, that you actually can change. The encouraging news is that you can actually change. As we're sitting here pondering our shortcomings, the reality is is that we can be transformed. In the gospel, through the, the Holy Spirit of God, we can actually change. That word transformed in this text is actually the word that we use to make metamorphosis. You remember elementary school science class when you learned about a caterpillar? A caterpillar, this ugly little furry thing that has a bunch of legs that crawls up into a tree, uh, connects to a leaf or whatever it does. I'm not a science expert, I don't know. But it creates this cocoon and about four weeks later, it literally turns into a butterfly. Like it's almost unbelievable that it goes from this to that. They're completely different things. And this is one of the mercies of God that the Holy Spirit inside you actually transforms you over time through the reprogramming of your mind, the renewal of your mind, as it says here. And many of you guys have experienced it already. A lot of us in here have had a pull, an addiction to something. It could be a a substance, alcohol, uh, porn, and and, and this thing kind of captured us and it pulled us in and all we did was focus on this. And, And through the power, the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit, God renewed our minds and our hearts and he actually made us go the other direction to where we don't actually want anything to do with that anymore. That's transformation. 
Some of us have, have chased, uh, with our lives, have chased money, and we've been closed-fisted, and we want to just get, 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 get. And, and at some point, the Holy Spirit started doing a transforming work, and you have stopped chasing money, and you've started chasing Jesus, and you've become open-handed, open-minded, and, and you've started giving money generously. That's transformation. Some of you, I know this is me, uh, you used to use your words a lot to, to judge people, to, to criticize people in, in bad sarcasm. And, and maybe it sneaks in every once in a while still, but the reality is, is you used to use your words to damage and hurt people, and Jesus has done a transforming work in your heart, and, and now he has changed you to where you use your words to encourage people, to share the loving good news of Jesus. That's transformation. So, so what's our action step? How do we actually become transformed? How do we become living sacrifices? Well, uh, theologian John Stott, he, he says this. He says, we are imitative by nature. We need a model to copy. And in this, Stott is referring to Jesus. The good news is that Jesus is not only our model or our example, but he's also our transforming power source. He's going to empower us to do this. So if we want to be like Jesus, we need to get around Jesus. If we want to think and talk like Jesus, we're going to have to spend time with Jesus. If we're going to imitate or mimic him, we're going to have to, to spend time with him. This living illustration of this verse, or of this idea of mimicking or imitating Jesus and being transformed popped into my mind earlier this week as my son Nash, he's three years old, um, he was yelling at Carrie and I from across the room and he said, mommy and daddy, look, mommy and daddy, look, look over here. And I'll have to give you a little backstory before I tell the punchline, and that is that a few months ago, I joined a gym that does a lot of Olympic weightlifting. And apparently, when I walk around the house, I do a lot of practice weightlifting poses as I'm trying to figure this whole thing out. And so Nash said, mommy and daddy, look. And he goes, sorry, he goes, like this. And he's practicing his power cleans in our living room as we're watching him. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. This, this, so this kid is mimicking me. And if you hang around Nash and you look at him, even his facial expressions look like mine. It, it just the other day, I noticed something else. He, he starts talking like me. So he was trying to put on his shoes on the wrong feet. And I was trying to say, Nash, you got to switch it around. It's not going to work. You just got to, I said, you just have to trust me. And he was crying. And finally he switched around his shoes, put him in the right feet. I said, you just have to trust me, buddy. And no more than an hour later, I hear from the other room, he's talking to his two-year-old sister and he goes, Liv, you just have to trust me. (laughs) I, I would not trust him if I was her, by the way. We are transformed, we're renewed when we spend time with our Savior. We become like him when we're around him. We talk like him when we know his words. And we start to think, act, and talk like him. Our minds are renewed by the Spirit. We are transformed. And when our whole being changes, our heart, our mind our body, and you realize the great mercies that he's shown toward us, you will willingly crawl up onto that altar and say, Jesus, I'm yours. I'm a living sacrifice for you. 
we can become a community of worshipers like that providence. So I want to end by just quickly suggesting three ways. Some of you like want to take away. You want, okay, what next? And I want to give you three little applications, the ways that you can do this, okay? Ways that you can allow your mind to be renewed by God. And the first is just the Bible. This is a Sunday school answer, right? If, if you want to speak the words of God, if you want to think like Jesus, you actually have to know his words and his true living and active words are found in the Bible, Like he speaks to us through the Bible. And so if we want to know those things, we have to know the word. And so if you're around here at Providence, we study the Bible in city groups. So come join a city group. We have discipleship groups called huddles uh, that are three-ish people of the same gender. They come together. They study the Bible together for part of their time. So get in a huddle or, or just open the Bible yourself and read the Bible. If we want to know the words of Jesus, if we want to to mimic, imitate him, we have to let our minds soak in the words of scripture. The second thing is this, responding to the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm convinced that that the Holy Spirit nudges, prompts, convicts all of us uh, fairly regularly. And I think fairly regularly we have a a tendency to hold him at bay and say, oh, no, thanks. Just a couple weeks ago, some people in our city group were talking about this, how he said, man, it feels like the Holy Spirit does tell me to to go and talk to someone or go and help someone or go pray for someone. But there's a lot of times that I just kind of ignore it because it seems uncomfortable or I don't know what's going to happen. And I want to say the way to mimic or imitate Jesus, the way to be transformed is to practice listening to the Holy Spirit and actually obey what he says when he's prompting you to do something. The third thing is very simply live life in community. Part of the design of God's people in, in living, living in community with God's people is that it would provide a counterculture to the real culture that's out there. That it would display the gospel, the love of Jesus to you in a very real way. And so diving deep into friendships will allow you to see the gospel work in a transformative way. And, and the spirit works in community and transformation happens in community. And you become like Jesus in community. So what's the call for Providence Church from all of this? I think it starts as individuals and then as a community. It's for us to crawl up onto the altar and give ourselves as living sacrifices, to become worshipers who make disciples, worshipers who make Omaha become more like heaven. And because of how he has died for us, we live to him. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you uh, for your mercies, for the fact that you have uh, extended so much to us. All uh, we can do, our appropriate rational response is to worship you, God. Uh, Would you empower us to be worshipers? Would you transform us as we're pulled toward being conformed to the world? God, we want uh, our minds to be renewed so our bodies are living sacrifices for you. We We want to make disciples. We want to impact our city. We want you to get more glory in this city, and we know that we have to worship you to do this, and we need you. We need your spirit's power. We need your spirit's transforming work. So God, would you work in a mighty way in our community and transform us into worshipers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Okay, so for the next couple minutes, I'm going to have you break up into groups of four-ish, four, five, six people. Uh, you can turn your chairs, and on the back of your programs, there's a couple of questions that you can go through. Go through those questions. If you get through them real quick, you can take some time to pray afterwards, and then uh, the band will come up and we'll take communion and worship after that. So take a few minutes, maybe, maybe six or seven minutes, and go through those questions.